This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hi, you're listening to Green Pulse and I'm Nirmal Ghosh, co-host along with David Fogarty. In this episode, we are going to look at the impact on the climate of conflict and war. Now, even in normal times, militaries with all their hardware, their ships and tanks and planes and so forth are huge emitters of the greenhouse gases that drive global warming. And these are not exactly normal times. Humanity is at war in two places right now, Ukraine and the Middle East. There are other low-level conflicts elsewhere, of course. Sometimes it seems like every day we wake up to news of bombs and drones and missiles. One has to wonder if those that conduct these operations ever wonder about their impact on the climate. To discuss this vexing issue, my guest today is Dr. Axel Mikhailova, climate policy specialist at the University of Zurich, and among other things, also senior founding partner of the Perspectives Climate Group. Axel, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thanks. Now, I know I tend to be cynical. Uh, It seems long overdue for this aspect of the climate impact of conflict and wars to be taken seriously. Is it being taken seriously now? I would say in the last three years, the topic has generated a lot of interest of NGOs, of media, of researchers. I was a lone caller in the desert. I wrote my first piece about the emissions of conflict and the counting of military emissions in the context of the international climate regime back in 2001. At that time, nobody was interested. I was really startled because I thought, well, it's a relevant topic. We'll always have wars. We'll always have occupied territories and the international climate policy regime needs to deal with it. But at that time, nobody took interest. So I thought, okay, it's an aberration. I will go back to my carbon market work. And then I was really surprised because in late 21, I was asked by a small UK NGO to engage in the topic again, whether I could update my work I'd been doing 20 years ago. And I did that. And then, of course, the Ukraine war broke out and suddenly the interest skyrocketed. But I also realized that a community had formed, especially over the last three, four years in the UK and the US, of researchers and think tanks and NGOs who were addressing the issue, of course, who had done really good painstaking work looking at specific numbers of military emissions in peacetime, also conflict-related emissions. So I felt, wow, it's good to see that work that you did long ago and where you thought it doesn't make any impact is now making an impact, and I'm happy that I got back into the community. That's very interesting. I'm glad that happened. Uh, Now, what are the orders of magnitude that we know of in terms of greenhouse gas emissions from major conflicts? You know, let's say Ukraine, Gaza, even Syria, Kuwait, 1990, or Vietnam in the 60s. Do we actually know? We have rough orders of magnitude, even for the historical conflicts. We know, for example, that the Agent Orange destroying forests in Vietnam during the Vietnam War must have generated emissions in the order of magnitude of 300 to 400 million tons of CO2. So that would be about seven to eight times the emissions of Switzerland, the annual emissions. The burning of the oil wells of Kuwait by Saddam Hussein's army in 1990 has generated probably even more than 400 million tons. So that's the largest single emission of a conflict that we currently know. 
When we look into the Ukrainian conflict, there is a team led by Leonard de Klerk, who was an old hand in climate change mitigation, carbon markets, and who brought together a nice team of experts, including Ukrainian specialists. He has been doing two updates of the emissions from the Ukraine war. The latest update that came out at the conference of the parties in Dubai last December gives a figure of about 120 million tons of CO2 equivalent for the Ukrainian war. That's a broad estimate in the sense that it covers also indirect effects, for example, refugee movements and also, of course, change of supply chains and so on. But I think uh, the calculations are broadly correct and done with a good amount of really innovative approaches. With regards to Gaza, we are now hearing that about 50% of the buildings in Gaza have been destroyed uh, during the war up so far. There are some estimates of destruction of buildings in the context of the Syrian war, which say that uh, about 10 to 20 million tons of CO2 are linked to the need to rebuild this with new cement. Uh, so I would think that the order of magnitude of the Gaza war is comparable. We'll certainly have 30, 40 million tons of emissions related to that conflict. Very grim figures. Now, as I mentioned at the top, more broadly, even in the absence of a major war somewhere on the planet, peacetime emissions alone from militaries are significant, especially from those as large as, as the US military, for instance. But militaries are seen in many countries as sacred cows. You know, national security is the last thing they want to be seen to compromise. Plus, reporting military emissions is apparently voluntary. Is that right? And how can and should the international climate policy system address military and conflict-related emissions? So you're right that when the international climate change regime was set up and the Kyoto Protocol was negotiated in 1997, the United States pushed very strongly that there is no need to report and cover emissions from the so-called international bunker fuels. That means transport fuel for ships and airplanes. And of course, the bulk of military emissions in peacetime is the training and movement of ships and airplanes. And it was also very clearly mentioned in a Senate hearing in 97 that the main purpose for this exemption is military. Interestingly, that had, of course, negative repercussions because the civilian air transport is also not covered, which meant that for a long time nothing was happening. Now they have their own system of emission reduction and crediting through the so-called Corsia system. But we lost about 10 to 15 years of mitigation in those sectors. But coming back now to the U.S. military, there is a very nice study published by Nita Crawford, who's currently a professor in Cambridge, on the emissions from U.S. military, not only just recently, but throughout 150 years of history. It's really worth reading. And uh, she finds a very interesting long-term trend that the emissions generated by business as usual operation of barracks, training sites, transport of uh, stuff, these are going down over time. But of course, if there is an increase in conflict intensity, 
emissions are going up. So you see very nice shifts, for example, the Gulf War, the war in Afghanistan, so on. And of course, uh, that shows us that the military in peacetime is comparable to other sectors of the economy. So if you introduce renewable electricity, that of course also will reduce emissions from the electricity consumption of barracks. Uh, if you increase the fuel efficiency of transport vehicles, because army also uses a lot of normal transport vehicles, then you will reduce the emissions from those vehicles. So I would say over time, we have this tendency of military in peacetime to reduce emissions along the lines of emission reductions in other sectors of the economy. But of course, if you have a military like the US that is present in many countries of the world with huge bases, these emissions will be big and they need to be accounted for. And the interesting thing is that the US is essentially outsourcing the counting of its military emissions. Because if you now have a base in a foreign country, the emissions under the UN Climate Convention are accounted under that country. And I don't think that the US in their treaties for operating the bases in these countries have taken this into account. At least I've never seen any proof of it. So essentially, US military presence is generating a burden for the countries when it comes to fulfilling their nationally determined contributions, their emission targets under the Paris Agreement. Okay, going back to Ukraine, according to the data I have seen from the from CIPRI, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, in 2022, the war in Ukraine had a, obviously a major effect on both global and regional military expenditure. Military expenditure in Europe grew by 13%, and CIPRI suggested that the war will exacerbate the ongoing upward trend. How do European countries square this with their climate commitments? It is obvious that if public budget is used for military expenses, there will be less public budget available for climate change mitigation. And given that the general population would not be happy to see tax increases to pay for climate change mitigation, there is certainly a conflict and we need to deal with this. And we are seeing the first tendencies to reduce expenditures for climate change mitigation. For example, the German Constitutional Court just last autumn slashed the budget for climate change mitigation because it argued it was unconstitutional to use funds that had been originally meant to treat the COVID pandemic for climate change mitigation. So I'm expecting a more and more difficult budget allocation process for climate change related action in Europe. And of course, we also have the much difficult approach to harness funding through the general budget. So overall, I think that if we have an increase of geopolitical conflicts, we will have a pressure on reducing expenditures related to climate change. Let me take advantage of having you on uh, with me this time. You've been at this for so many years, as you said right at the top. It is encouraging, uh, as you have said, that some of this is being taken into account now. But how optimistic are you on this front? How optimistic are you that this will all come to something, this attention 
to the environmental impact, the climate impact of wars and conflict. So I co-organized the so-called side event at the Conference of the Parties to the UN Climate Convention in Sharm el-Sheikh in November 2022. So there was a huge interest in the topic. We had a full room. We had all the relevant international media there. And uh, the repercussion was quite strong. And I had invited representatives of Moldova and of Georgia to discuss the counting of emissions of the occupied territories. And I felt really that they were so happy to be able to describe the problems they faced in the past couple of years or even decades, how to deal with these occupied territories. Just as an example, the Moldovan Ministry of Environment collects the statistical yearbooks of the occupied territory of Transnistria. Of course, Transnistria doesn't have an interest to inform Moldova about what happens there. But apparently they publish some stuff, so the Moldovans collect that. And then painstakingly, by also, of course, making some assumptions, calculate the emissions from their territory. And they say we need to do it because otherwise we would lose the sovereignty. Uh, same for Ukraine. Ukraine wants to claim the emissions from Crimea, from the Donbass region, and of course the newly occupied regions, because they say if we would not uh, report on that, we would give up our sovereignty. So that I found a really interesting message because it showed that the governments care and that they are willing to take up burdens because it's clear they can't influence the emissions in these territories. And to fulfill their national emission targets, they need to do more, do more if they claim these emissions. Uh, so that level of engagement really struck me. And I think for the first time, it was really no longer an arcane technical debate, but something that people could link to. And I think that in the context of the UN system, there is now a clear view that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. And the reporting under the Paris Agreement cannot just ignore it. Also in the context of the IPCC, the IPCC now for its new assessment cycle has agreed on a special report on cities. So I would think that in the special report on cities, we should try to ensure that there is at least a box that discusses the emissions from burning cities, destroying cities during conflicts. There are very interesting studies, for example, from Germany. Hamburg was burned in 1943 in the big firestorm. Uh, so there are surprisingly detailed research papers of the 1950s, 1960s, trying to assess how much wood was burned. And from that, of course, you can easily calculate CO2 emissions. And I looked at that carefully, and it showed that burning of the city of Hamburg generated about 20 million tons of CO2 emissions. And of course, uh, yeah, if you now look into conflicts that uh, burn cities in the future, we have some uh, clear indications. There has also been really interesting work of those who looked into the aftermath of nuclear war in the 1980s, because they also calculated, yeah, if you burn 500 cities through a nuclear war, what will be the emissions? So we have really interesting 
experience there or research done over multiple decades. Of course, that needs to be collated, be brought together, but I hope that the IPCC will be, be able to do that. That's fascinating and very interesting. Thank you. In a, in a grim sort of way, uh, Dr. Axel Mikhailova, thank you very much. It is a grim subject, but it does need to be talked about, and I'm glad it is being talked about more. Thank you for being my guest on Wheat Pulse. Thank you very much for having me in your podcast. That wraps it up for Green Pulse. Once again, I'm Nirmal Ghosh. Thanks for listening. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or within our Straits Times app. Thanks for listening.